Welcome again to 2008, the 2008 Criswell Theological Lectures. Our guest for the week speaker is Dr. Richard Land. He is president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he is a Criswell College man. Dr. Land um, was the academic dean at Criswell College uh, who helped this school get accreditation with two different agencies, three different times, I believe. And uh, we're thankful for that. He also uh, established a, a tradition of academic excellence. And also that's sort of a mix of a professor that's mean and popular at the same time. And we have others like that, Daniel Street and others that I think may fit that category from what I'm told. But I have said this, and I've heard many others say this, my favorite professors as I look back are the most difficult professors because they push you. And Dr. Land is always uh, pushed for excellence in the classroom and in the, anywhere else. Uh, he operates. And I, I do thank the Lord for you, Dr. Land, for your influence in my life. And for so many students, you know, um, he has hired three Criswell College grads for his VP staff up there. We've got Harold Harper up there as vice president, Carrie Burrell. We have Barrett Duke, Dr. Barrett Duke. And so uh, if you need a job, go to Dr. Land, the Criswell College graduates up there working at ERLC. Uh, we thank the Lord for you, for your influence. Uh, if you saw the last Criswell Theological Review, I want you to know that uh, Dr. Land is not only thinking about the United States, but globally. He wrote an excellent article in the last Criswell Theological Review on genocide and just war. And he talks about Darfur. He talks about the Sudan. He talks about North Korea. It's an excellent piece. So he is not only concerned about the United States, he's concerned about what's going on all over the world. Dr. Land, again, we welcome you to Criswell College. Come on. Well, it's good to be back with you again today. And uh, I want to, first of all, say that uh, during the 13 years that I taught at Criswell College, I had four students who really stood out head and shoulders above the rest of my students in terms of their abilities and in terms of their application of those abilities to the things of the Lord. And uh, Dr. Johnson was one of those. He was the, he was the youngest of the four. Uh, Dr. Barrett Duke was the first, who's now the Vice President for Public Policy and head of our research institute and heads up our Washington office of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, the second was David Allen, who many of you will know, who I, uh, David wanted to leave early to go back to Rome, Georgia for Christmas. And so he said, can I take my Baptist history test early? And I said, yes, you may. So he came to my office and I said, all right, David, one question. You've got two hours, write everything you know about Baptist history. And he tells the story, you know, it's uh, woo scary stuff. Uh, but when he was finished, and I finished grading it, I, I put on there, I said, David, this is a magnificent job. I could not have done better myself. Uh, David was an outstanding student and, of course, is now the uh, academic dean at Southwestern. And then the third was Danny Aiken, 
uh, who is now the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and the fourth is Dr. Johnson. So you're in tall cotton, Dr. Johnson, for those four. And uh, it is true that um, I am far more popular with Crystal alumni than I was with Crystal students when I had them in class. Um, and, um, you know, they tell, they, 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 their noses should grow because they tell stories that get worse with every telling and every passing year. I get more ogre-like. Um, you know, the, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's disgusting to hear them um, um, use ministerial license to excuse their, their lying. I wasn't near as tough as I get credit for. But, um, and I had an interesting experience uh, last night and early this morning. I um, was reminded by the um, flock of people who take care of me. Um, I, I need a lot of taking care of. I, um, I uh, am a, a very right-brained person. I'm a forest person. I need someone counting the trees and telling me which trees need to be cut down and which ones need to be pruned. And uh, they reminded me that I had a writing assignment due today that I hadn't started on until uh, I got back from dinner uh, last night. And so, uh, and the assignment was, um, there is, and this should encourage you, it encourages me, there is a spiritual revival going on in the, on the Ivy League campuses of America. When I was at Princeton, there were, I mean, I was, it was like I was an alien creature from a foreign planet. Uh, being an evangelical Christian, most of my classmates didn't know what an evangelical Christian was. They didn't know what born again was. And they wanted to know if I handled snakes. Um, and now, and Princeton was an aggressively, hostily secular place in the late 1960s. Today, in a student body of about 5,500 students, there are about 1,000 Princeton students involved in weekly Bible studies. And um, it is amazing to see what is going on. And it's, it's going on at Princeton, it's going on at Harvard, at Yale, at Brown, at all of those schools, and many other schools. And so they're putting together a book of testimonies uh, of Princeton grads who are Christians. And so they asked me to write one. That was my assignment. So last night I was writing my testimony. And as I was writing my testimony, I had to stop two or three times and just... Uh, bow my head and give thanks to the Lord for the many people that God has sent into my life and has used in a wonderful way, beginning with my mother. In the providence of God, I am, I am blessed in that I was born into a home with a very devout Christian mother. I can never remember a time when I did not know from my mother's lips that God loved me, that Jesus died for me, and that God had a plan for my life that was uniquely suited to the unique person that I am. Uh, I was led to the Lord through a backyard good news club with childhood evangelism. And even today, when I read the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors, or Elijah and the prophets of Baal, or those who cut a hole in the ceiling to lower, Jesus, to lower someone down to see Jesus, the mental images that come to mind are of those old flannel graph stories from that backyard good news club uh, when I was a child. And uh, I'm grateful for, for that heritage. I'm grateful for uh, those uh, adults who invested in me.
and 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 I was I was the problem child. Um, I was hyperactive attention deficit, and uh, if they'd had Ritalin when I was a kid, they would have marinated me in it. Um, I am, the, for those of you who, adults who work with children, I am the one that they always had within reach of an adult in any assembly of any kind, uh, just so they could take matters in hand. And so I appreciate the patience of those folks and, and uh, the people who invested in me. And uh, it is, um, I'm, you know, it's, it's a, I am of all people uh, blessed and grateful for those who have invested in me. And uh, last night, Jack Pogue, having dinner with Jack Pogue, he asked me uh, one of my favorite Criswell stories. And one of them is, I didn't tell him last night, so you can share this one with him. Um, I remember him saying to me one time, he said, if the first three years I was here, he just called me smart boy. But he'd say, smart boy, don't ever try to circumscribe what God may do. You never know what God may have in store for your life. Well, I am living proof of that. Because if you had asked me at any time that I was in seminary whether I would one day be the head of what is now the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, I would have said that you had been smoking something illegal. I used to vote to defund this agency, and now I am the head of it. So be very careful. Don't, don't try to, to circumscribe what God may do in your life. Now, in our last hour together, I want to continue talking about the place where religious freedom and religious expression and uh, government accommodation come together. I have shared with you the article on the Christian and the social order in our Baptist faith and message, which says that we are under obligation to seek to bring society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we're to work to protect the unborn, and uh, we are to stand for the sanctity of human life. And yet, we are also told in our article on religious liberty that we believe that the free church and a free state is the Christian ideal and that the church should not resort to the state to do its work. It's the church's job to do its work. And so, how do we coincide those together? How do we, how do we cause them to reconcile? We have, as you heard me say yesterday in our vision statement for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, an American society that affirms and practices Judeo-Christian values rooted in biblical authority. Well, I've thought about this a lot. And in fact, this, this book, The Divided States of America, is the product of about 40 years' reflection of a Baptist American on the issue of how these two go together. And one of the mistakes, one of the errors that has done incalculable damage to this whole debate is an erroneous assumption. You know, when you get your presuppositions wrong, you're in big trouble. And the presupposition 
is that there are only two views. <clears throat> there is the avoidance view, which is that in order to maintain a strict separation of church and state, we need to try to avoid any expression of the Christian faith in the public square, and we need to avoid any expression of the nation in church. Uh, it's the kind of uh, philosophy that uh, was uh, characterized those who criticized Abraham Lincoln. When Abraham Lincoln was running for president in 1860, he was being roundly criticized for making the slavery issue an issue in the political campaign. And one night in Springfield, Massachusetts, in the course of the campaign, Honest Abe had had enough. So he got up and strode to the podium, and he said, My critics tell me that I should not talk about slavery in politics because that's bringing religion into politics. And my other critics tell me that I shouldn't talk about, talk about slavery in the pulpit because that's bringing politics into religion. And so according to my critics, there's no place where I can call this wrong thing wrong and this evil thing evil. Well, I'm glad that Abe Lincoln didn't listen to his critics, and neither should we. Uh, we have some compelling moral issues facing our society, that we need to address, and we need to address them with biblical truth. And the idea that we should avoid the, the public policy issues in church, or that we should avoid religious expression in the public square, is what I call the avoidance position. It's the strict separationist position. And then on the other side, you have the acknowledgement position. And that is the position that says that it's perfectly all right for the government to acknowledge on behalf of the people the majority religion. That after all, Christians are the majority. We got here first. And so, we should have Christian prayers, and only Christian prayers, in public places. And we should have Christian Bible readings, and only Christian Bible readings, in public places. And we should have Christian ministers, and only Christian ministers, open up the Senate, or the House of Representatives, or the state legislature with prayer. And that it's perfectly all right for the government to get on one side of the religious divide and to say we're going to be for this religion. And the other religions will be tolerated, but we're going to give preference. We're going to give sponsorship. We're going to be a coach and a cheerleader for a particular religion. Now, fortunately, there is another position. And it is the position that is most in accord with Baptist beliefs and Baptist principles. It's not the avoidance position. It's not the acknowledgement position. It is the accommodation position. 
And I have outlined these in an appendix in my book, which um, uh, you can uh, look at, Appendix F. The accommodation position says government shouldn't be a coach, shouldn't be a cheerleader, shouldn't be a sponsor, shouldn't be someone who is favoring one religion over other religions or religion over no religion. And government shouldn't be censoring religion or suppressing religion or seeking to segregate religion from the public square. Instead, the government should be an umpire. The government should make sure everybody plays fair. The government should say every citizen has the right to bring his expressions of his or her religious faith into the public square according to the dictates of their own consciences. And that when this happens, the government just makes sure that the majority doesn't suppress the minority and the minority doesn't have the right to suppress the majority. Unfortunately, too often in the last 30 years, we've had the minority getting the, law, the judges on their side saying that they have a right to suppress the majority because they're in the minority and they don't want to be made to feel bad. We're not allowed to express our faith. That's nonsense. Perhaps the, the, um, the worst example of that was the Santa Fe school case. Little town of Santa Fe, Texas, just south of Houston. The students in the high school decided that they wanted to have prayer before athletic contests. So they went to the administration and said, we want to have prayer before athletic contests. And so they went to the, the administration went to the school's lawyer, and the school's lawyer said, well, actually what you want to have is a solemnizing event before athletic contests. That's legal jargon for prayer. And he said, if you're going to do it constitutionally, you have to have the student body vote that they want to have prayer. Then you have to have the student body hold another election in which they vote to elect their own solemnizers. And then the student solemnizers have to have absolute control over the content of their solemnizing. So that's what they did. They held an election, and the students overwhelmingly voted to have a solemnizing event. And they elected solemnizers. They elected a solemnizer and an alternate solemnizer. The solemnizer was a Roman Catholic girl. The alternate solemnizer was the adopted daughter of a Baptist minister. Well, one of those minorities decided to go to the, to the judge and say to the judge, this violates my constitutional right not to hear what I don't want to hear. By the way, there is, this is a copy of the Constitution. There is no constitutional right not to hear what you don't want to hear. Their right not to hear what they don't want to hear ends with our right to free expression and free speech. Well, the judge, unfortunately, sided with 
the person who said, we can't allow such a prayer to take place. And so the attorneys and the judge said that you can sodomize, but if you mention the word God, you will be disciplined as if you had used profanity and you will go to jail. Well, under that pressure, the young woman who had been elected to solemnize declined. And the alternate solemnizer got an attorney. And uh, one recommended by Jay Seculo, our attack dog, our legal beagle. And he got a stay. And so when it came time before the first football game, the Baptist minister's daughter in her band uniform left her place in the band and made her way to the public address system. And she prayed. And she prayed the way you would expect a Baptist minister's daughter to pray. She mentioned Jesus' name three times, including in the close in which she said, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, the crowd erupted with a standing ovation that lasted at least two and a half minutes until finally the public address announcer said, would you please sit down so we can start this football game? Now, you know that when Texans are willing to delay the start of a high school football game, they're serious. Well, the Santa Fe school case went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And unfortunately, on a five to four decision with Sandra Day O'Connor providing the fifth and deciding vote, the Supreme Court ruled that the young lady had acted unconstitutionally because the school district had paid for the microphone. I'm not kidding. I couldn't make that up. And so, even though it was student-initiated, student-led, student-content-dictated prayer, it was declared unconstitutional speech because the government paid for the microphone. That is not the government being an umpire. That is the government being a suppressor and a censor of religion. Now the good news is, is that Sandra Day O'Connor has now retired from the Supreme Court. And she has been replaced by Associate Justice Samuel Alito, who was nominated to the Supreme Court by George W. Bush, who, when he was governor of Texas, filed a friend of the court brief in favor of the students being allowed to solemnize any way they wanted to when they had been elected to solemnize by their fellow students. And so we can look forward to a day in the near future when we will have a reversal of that Santa Fe school decision. And when it happens, just remember, elections have consequences. If you don't like the Supreme Court, then you need to elect presidents who will nominate only strict constructionist original intent jurists. Justice Rob, my favorite, my favorite moment in the Supreme Court, in the Senate hearings on Chief Justice John Roberts. And by the way, 
if President Bush's opponent had won the last election, they would have been the confirmation hearings for Chief Justice Hillary Rodham Clinton, not Chief Justice Roberts. And Mrs. Clinton would be parking her broom at the Supreme Court for the next 25 years. The schmuck from New York, Chuck Schumer, was pontificating and saying, I just want to know, Judge Roberts, are you going to be for the little guy? And Judge Roberts said, Senator, my client is the Constitution. If the Constitution says the little guy should win, the little guy is going to win. If the Constitution says the big guy should win, the big guy is going to win. I am a judicial umpire. That is the role that the courts are supposed to play and have not played for nearly half a century, much to the detriment of our liberty. What we should want as Baptists is maximum accommodation of your view and my view and everyone else's view in the public square. We live in a, in a time and in a place where we face enormous difficulties and crises in our society. Now, I cannot even fathom the Great Depression. As someone who was born after World War II, it is just impossible for me to imagine. My parents have tried to help me imagine it a lot. But... I, I, can't, I can't comprehend a time when we had an unemployment rate of 25%. And this is back when most families had one income. And there wasn't any unemployment insurance. And the banks were closed. And there wasn't any Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So if you had money in the bank and the bank closed, you lost your money. And there was openly talk of the collapse of our entire system, economic and governmental system. And when Franklin Roosevelt took the oath of office in 1933, he addressed the nation by radio and he said, the only thing that we have to fear is fear itself. And then he went on to say that our problems are merely economic, and they can be remedied. Would to God that an American president could stand before the American people today and say, our problems are merely economic, and they can be solved. Our problems are problems of the soul, problems of the heart, problems of the spirit. They're God-sized problems, and only God can solve them. And because of some misshapen, contorted, and misunderstood understanding of our founding fathers' intent that says that we should voluntarily suppress and segregate the insights of religious faith from trying to tackle the enormous problems we face is a price that is too high to pay and one that our founding fathers never intended for us to pay. 
we should maximally accommodate every American's right to bring his religiously informed values and his religiously informed convictions into the public square and to seek to make the case for those insights being used to solve the terrible crises that confront us as a nation. We're not going to solve the problem of more than half of our children spending the majority of their childhood and adolescence in single-parent homes without understanding the eternal truths that God has given us about the family and about marriage and about our responsibilities within the divine institution of holy matrimony. I've had people ask me, you say, well, your vision statement is an American society that affirms and practices Judeo-Christian values rooted in biblical authority. What would that look like? And I said, well, you know, a good place to start might be to imagine what it was like in America in 1956 without the racism and without the sexual discrimination against women. 1956, divorce was rare. Illegitimacy was even rarer. The church I grew up in in Houston, there was one lady in the church who was divorced. We all felt sorry for her. She was known as the divorced lady. Her husband was an alcoholic who had abandoned the family. I had one friend at school whose parents were divorced. It's not that way anymore, is it? Even in Christian churches. We now have a situation where Baptists and Evangelicals have the same divorce rate as the culture. That's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to the gospel. And the reason for it is we have far too many Baptists and other evangelicals who quote the Bible by the yard, but they live it by the inch. The divorce rate in this country is one in two and a half marriages. But in marriages where the husband and the wife pray together every day, it is one in 1,500. That is what is known as a statistically significant statistic. And can any of us imagine a marriage where both people are Christians, where they are not praying to together every day, at the very least, praying together every day? And if we were, we wouldn't be having the divorce rate that we're having. We're not going to face these problems and we're not going to solve these problems apart from the spiritual insights that God has given us and we have a right to bring them into the public arena. Now, I've got some handouts for you. I, I tried to keep you from getting them before the speech because I knew that you'd read them instead of listening to me. So, uh, But they're available afterwards. One is a, a column that I did before Governor Romney gave his speech on December the 6th at the George Bush Library in a&M, and then one that I did after the speech, and then one that I did on political candidates and their faith. 
I was 13 years old living in Houston, Texas when President Kennedy came to Houston and addressed the ministers of the Greater Houston Ministerial Association about his Catholicism. And he said, I have come here not to talk to you about what kind of church I believe in, but about what kind of America I believe in. And he said, I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I'm the Democratic Party's candidate for president. Then Senator Kennedy did not spend one sentence trying to define or defend his faith. He defended the right of someone of his faith to run for president. Now, let me be very clear about this. I do not believe that Mormonism is a Christian faith. It is another religion. Their doctrine of God the Father and their doctrine of God the Son are substantially and critically different than the doctrine of God the Father and the doctrine of God the Son that is found in the Old and New Testament and is found in the, in the Apostles' teaching and in the Apostles' creed. It is not Trinitarian with a capital T, Orthodox with a, cap, with a little O, Apostolic with a capital A, Christian faith. It can be encapsulated in this one horrific statement in one of their holy documents, which says, as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man may become. There's not anything in that statement that's right except the punctuation. But that does not mean that we should disqualify someone for running for president because of their faith. Now, I'm not endorsing Mitt Romney. I'm not even saying Mitt Romney is the best candidate for the job. But I am saying that as President Kennedy said in September of 1960, it is a Catholic that the finger of suspicion is pointed at today. In the past, it has been a Jew or a Quaker or a Baptist and it could be again. After all, it was persecution of Baptists that led to Thomas Jefferson writing the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom in 1786. When we allow people to discriminate against any religious faith, it will ultimately give people the opportunity to discriminate against people of all religious faiths. What we allow them to do to Jehovah's Witnesses or to Muslims today, they can do to Baptists tomorrow. And we as Baptists have usually and in the past mostly understood that, and we need to continue to remember it. There is an appropriate questioning and an inappropriate questioning in a political campaign. If a person says that he or she is a person of faith, then we, it is, it, is, it is perfectly kosher, it is perfectly legitimate to, to examine how that person's faith impacts their life, their character, their performance of their office, their positions on the issues, and their visions for the country's future. It is beyond the pale... And I believe it is illegitimate 
and unconstitutional and un-American to start then subjecting candidates for office to doctrinal pat-downs and theological litmus tests about the specifics of their individual faiths. Mike Huckabee was the victim of this recently. As many of you know, in 1998, we added an article to our Baptist faith and message on the family. I was privileged to be one of the people who was asked, asked to draft that document, which we affirmed overwhelmingly, interestingly enough, in Salt Lake City in 1998. And it says, among other things, the husband and the wife are of equal worth before God since both are created in his image. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. Well, Governor Huckabee and his wife when he was governor of Arkansas, signed an advertisement, a statement that was put together by Dennis Rainey and had prominent evangelicals such as Dr. Dobson and his wife and Dr. Falwell and his wife and others who took out a full-page ad in USA Today endorsing what Southern Baptists had said about the family, thanking Southern Baptists for making a biblical statement about the family. And so... The National Organization for Women, or as Rush Limbaugh calls them, the National Association of Gals, the NAGs. One of his better jibes, I actually thought. They said, why, Mike Huckabee is anti-woman. Mike Huckabee is a sexist. Because of his biblical affirmations about what the Bible has to say about the role that a husband and a wife should voluntarily assume within a voluntary relationship that some call marriage and we call holy matrimony. That, questioning Mike Huckabee about his beliefs about husband-wife relationships in a presidential campaign is beyond the pale. Unless they can find some, something in his record as governor of Arkansas, which they cannot, or statements that he's made which denigrate women, which they cannot, they have no right to say that he is anti-woman based upon his doctrinal beliefs within the confines of his church. And for them to do so betrays their anti-religious bigotry and we should be offended and we shouldn't put up with it. When someone is, if, if a Catholic's running, as Senator Kennedy did, if a Mormon is running, as Mitt Romney is, if a Baptist is running, as Mike Huckabee is, what they should say is, if you want to know the precise formulations of my belief and why, they, why we believe that, you need to contact the Vatican or the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops if it's a Catholic, or you need to contact Salt Lake City if it's a Mormon, or you need to contact Nashville if it's a Baptist, but if you want to talk to me about my record, about my positions on the issues, about my visions for the country's future, then you can talk to me or you can go to my website and see what my positions are. That's the proper relationship for religion 
in a presidential or in a senatorial or in a gubernatorial campaign. And if you want to know more about that, I've got some articles over there that will help you to understand. Now, what would accommodation look like? Well, let's take, let's take some examples. One of the most controversial has been manger scenes on courthouse squares. Dr. Falwell, the late Dr. Falwell, uh, once quipped when asked by the press, well, now, why is it that you think it is that the ACLU is so antagonistic to manger scenes on courthouse lawns? And he said, it's jealousy. He said, they've, they've, they've completely examined their membership roles and they can't three, find three wise men or a virgin. That was Dr. Falwell that said that. I'm just quoting. <laughs> now, the avoidance position says, the avoidance position says, under no circumstances should the people be allowed to have a manger scene on the courthouse lawn, even though the courthouse lawn belongs to the public. The acknowledgement position would say that, yes, the taxpayers should pay for and fund a manger scene and only a manger scene on the courthouse lawn because in most communities, the majority is still Christian, at least by heritage. And so it doesn't matter if there are Jews in the community. It doesn't matter if there are Muslims in the community. And then there's the accommodation position. The accommodation position would say, if the people in the community want to have a manger scene on the courthouse lawn, then they ought to be allowed to collect the money and buy a manger scene, and the government should accommodate their wish by allowing its display at the appropriate Christmas time, and they should provide police protection for it and the lighting for it and possibly even the storage for it between Christmas seasons. But that also means that if there are Jews in the community and they want to have a menorah scene at the appropriate time in the Jewish calendar, then they ought to be able to have a menorah celebrating Judaism as well. And if there are Muslims in that community, then at the appropriate time, they ought to be allowed to display a Muslim scene. Accommodation means... The government is an umpire, and the government makes sure that everybody plays fair. You see, there are basically three philosophies that are governing the attempt to manage and to, to accommodate the religious impulse in the world today. There is what I call theological uh, imperialism, that is Iran, which says every woman is going to wear a Muslim head covering, whether she's a Muslim or not, under penalty of law. And then there is what I call supreme secularism. That's what they have in France, where they say to Muslim parents and to Muslim girls, you can make a choice. You can either wear your Muslim head covering as your religion prescribes that you do, or you can attend public school for free. 
but you can't do both. Supreme secularism. And then we have what we call in the United States principled pluralism, where in Muskogee, Oklahoma, about as deep in red state country as you can get, the decision was made that Muslim girls may or may not wear their headscarves in public school. It's up to the Muslim parents and each Muslim girl. They are not going to be discriminated against and they are not going to be disallowed from going to the public schools because they are practicing their faith. That is what our Baptist forefathers had in mind and it is the principle that we should promote in the public square. And if we do so, we will benefit because all that Baptists and Christians have ever needed to flourish is a level playing field. Let us offer our prayers to the one true God. And let the other religions offer their prayers to false gods and see whose prayers get answered. God bless you. God bless your family. And God bless America.